Good afternoon, colleagues. Um, my name is Karlis Bokovskis, and I'm from the Latvian Institute of National Affairs. And uh, it is my sincerest pleasure to chair this session, which is entitled, uh, Are the Constant Crises Toughening Up the European Union? And it is the part of the uh, six annual Baltic EU conversations. And uh, this year entitled, Is Europe Getting Better? So we have a bit of a, uh, a healthcare tone this year. Um, due to the crisis we meet online, uh, the uh, current COVID-19 crisis uh, struck a year ago, and it was the Baltic EU conversations last year uh, that were hit uh, among the first ones. We had to, we had to cancel the event, but uh, this year we came prepared. We learned from the crisis and we adjusted to it, uh, just like the EU at every crisis that it has been facing. And uh, not only we adjusted, we actually went further and became even more ambitious. Uh, we, we pushed the limits and uh, we set a new standard. Uh, the three panels, uh, the other two panels, uh, which are in this case uh, strategic autonomy and European neighborhood are currently taking place in Tallinn and Vilnius, well, respectively. And uh, just like the European Union, uh, when delegating more powers to the EU institutions and uh, inventing new policies and instruments, the European Union is always in this case, adapting to the new crisis. And we're gonna speak on this panel about uh, the um, importance of, of, of the crisis uh, in, in life and, and in, in existence uh, of, of, of the European Union. Uh, crisis is a shock at the start, but as, as humans, we learn, to, uh, we learn to grow out of it, evidently. And then on this note, I actually um, I want to say that we wrote a book on crisis. It is called uh, Crisis as the Destiny of the European Union, and it is in Latvian. And then actually, this is, this is how it looks like. You can see also in the background, this is, this is also uh, the same book. Uh, a couple of notes on the book, which I wanted to say in, in, in Latvian language, so I will switch to the Latvian language very shortly. Grāmata, krīzka Eiropasēvnības līgtēns. The book, Crisis as a Destiny of the European Union, uh, the title sounds very dramatic, but our conclusions are, are uh, encouraging, because crises are a huge part of the destiny of the European Union, but they do not always have to be destructive. And the book uh, has a cl clear message, and it includes um, a list of essays by excellent authors uh, who would discuss the biggest crisis that the EU has faced uh, since Latvia has been a member of it. Mr. Martin Charbulinch discusses the COVID crisis. Mr. Aldis Auster turns to the economic and financial crisis. Ms. Agnes Alatze turns to the migration crisis. Ilza Rousa discusses Brexit. Lolita Chigana discusses the crisis over the rule of law. Alexander Polkov turns to the crisis of product quality. Martin Schwargulis turns to the external and military security crisis. And Alice Krapana discusses EU and US partnership crisis. This uh, book deals with uh, the crisis and their effects uh, on Latvia. And this gives the book a unique aspect. Uh, uh, we are very glad to have worked on it and thought about these crisis uh, and to work on it despite of the COVID crisis that has struck us. Uh, I invite you all to read the book, but now uh, we uh, turn to our excellent panelists. 
after this uh, short uh, break for advertisement. Uh, we have we have a truly inspiring and wonderful cast of experts here today. We have Mikhail Kozlovs, a member of the European Court of Auditors. Uh, we have Lucia Mokra, professor at the Comenius University in, in Bratislava, and maybe more influentially, uh, chairperson of the uh, board of uh, uh, chairperson of the board of the of TEPSA, or the Trans European uh, Policy Studies Association. Uh, we also have uh, Antoinette Primatarova, uh, Program Director on uh, European Union at the Center for Liberal Strategies uh, from Bulgaria. And we, of course, also have Rem Korteweg, Head of the Europe in the World Unit at Klingendal, the Netherlands Institute of uh, International Affairs. Um, I'm very happy that you all agreed to participate and that you all agreed to, uh, to, to, to join us in on this, on this discussion. I will initially give uh, each of you seven minutes uh, for, for, for your original remarks, and then I hope for an active conversation with the, with the audience. So audience can uh, send the questions in via Slido, as it is listed in the program, and, and also those who are uh, a bit closer to us can send in any other form you wish and prefer. Uh, panelists, I also encourage you to ask questions and then and, and debate uh, between ourselves. Let's let's have this discussion as an actual conversation. And um, colleagues, uh, there have been a multiplicity of crises, and they have been in different areas and in different kinds. And the central question that I that I was already indicating what I would like to discuss with you today. What is the thing which all the crises in the European Union have in common? So, Michels, if I may start with you, um, what is what? what uh, both ten years ago and and, and now the COVID nineteen crisis in, introduced economic challenges, right? So, in this case, could you please explain what have we learned from uh, from the previous crisis and from the today's crisis? Thank you, thank you, Carlos, very much. I hope you all hear and see me. Uh, well, first of all, of course, sincere thanks to the organizers, to the International uh, International Affairs Institute, to the Latvian Parliament, to the Commission's delegations, and, and to other organizers. Let me start by saying that uh, the main question of this panel is, is very close to my heart because it invites us to look um, in the past uh, to draw lessons for the future. And this, uh, this is exactly precisely what the European Court of Auditors does, or uh, for the benefit of policymakers and also society as a whole. Uh, as Carlos asked, let me focus on uh, the economic and financial governance in the European Union. And this is really a very interesting uh, policy area because uh, the European Union has experienced, and I think is still experiencing, uh, a significant transformation uh, in this area. Um, since uh, late 90s, I think, already since late 90s, the EU um, uh, has been pursuing um, very ambitious, very proactive cross-border market liberalization, uh, while at the same time uh, the development of uh, the governance mechanisms uh, and supranational institutions to put all these uh, ambitious reforms in place uh, was uh, certainly lagging behind, and it is still uh, the case as we as we see, I will come to, uh, to this point later. So uh, the 2008-9 crisis um, has exposed uh, the weaknesses in the EU financial system, uh, inadequacy of some policy tools, uh, surveillance and regulatory mechanisms, uh, as well as uh, incomplete institutional architecture, um, architecture at that time, 
and these deficiencies uh, were uh, have been widely you know recognized now and this is this is normal uh, we are all clever uh, to speak about past events but importantly uh, uh, they were also quite well um, known back in time back in 2000 but uh, for some reasons uh, not uh, not acted upon uh, left unattended um, so what the, you experienced in, 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 the, in the following years uh, uh, since the start of the crisis was really a, a profound stress, uh, but the EU responded uh, decisively um, to address uh, some of them. Uh, and it, 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 it happened often at um, dramatic, you know, last minute, late night meetings. And I had, I had the privilege to participate at some of those meetings. So the dynamic of this negotiation of, of, of the crisis management is really, is really amazing. So uh, what uh, came out of, uh, out, of this, um, out of this discussion, out of these reforms, uh, was basically a major project of the banking union, uh, which is still ongoing. Uh, uh, the single supervision of the financial sector, major e European banks are now supervised uh, uh, by, by the European Central Bank in a way. Um, uh, also, uh, there was a framework created to deal uh, with failing banks, because we all remember that failing banks actually, and their link to the sovereign, to, to, uh, to governments, uh, was actually a major, a major problem. Uh, the EU has also created um, several inst institutions, new institutions, um, and, and also produced a certain policy response to help uh, member states in, in difficulties. So we now have, the, for example, the European Fiscal Board. We have a European uh, uh, Stability Mechanism. Uh, we have uh, the Reform Stability and Growth Pact, the European Semester. I mean, I could, I could go on and go on. So we have multitude of uh, new policy instruments and institutions to, uh, to implement them. You all remember European Central Bank uh, back in time played a, a major role uh, with its promise to do whatever it takes. Uh, and I think um, this was a promise then again back in time had yet to be mirrored uh, by, the, by the governments on the fiscal side. And I'll come later to, the, to, 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 to an assertion that this had happened only recently with the new, uh, with the new recovery and resilience um, fund. Uh, and what is, I think, amazing is that uh, all that happened uh, within more or less yeah, 10, 15 years uh, in, in, in a setting of 28, 27 now, um, independent, uh, sovereign national, uh, national governments, national parliaments with their own dynamics and their own interests. So I think uh, uh, this, uh, this compressed pace of reform in, a, in, in, in still a very, very clearly intergovernmental setting uh, was uh, and is very, very interesting to look at. Um, as a result, uh, the uh, European economy and the financial sector as a whole have become, of course, more resilient. And this is why, uh, for example, uh, now uh, the banking sector, as we, as we are in the COVID crisis, the banking sector is not part of the problem, but it seems part of the solution. Well, we are still not out of, out of the woods, but, uh, but it seems to be the case for the time being. Uh, and note also that, for example, uh, despite major economic difficulties in, in, in member states, many governments uh, can uh, still borrow 
at very good market rates. That was not the case in the past, if you remember. So I think this is uh, uh, this also points in the direction that uh, uh, a lot has been learned from the from the past crisis. So so far so good. Uh, let me as uh, let me also be a bit uh, a, a bit more critical and ask a question whether the European Union uh, used all the opportunities uh, by the previous crisis um, uh, to solve uh, to solve its its issues. And and a very brief answer, I think, uh, to this complex question would be uh, that in the years leading to COVID crisis, uh, not everything has worked as it was planned. Uh, not everything was implemented in the spirit of the initial reforms. So, uh, and the reason is that that uh, because uh, as the crisis eased or, or no subsided in a way, uh, the momentum for reforms had been lost uh, somewhere on the way. Again, we saw lengthy debates at the European level, but with no far-reaching uh, far-reaching reforms in the last couple of years. So uh, uh, the, the European Court of Auditors has done extensive performance audit work on, on these issues. Uh, and uh, just to give you a couple, couple, of, couple of ideas of our conclusions, uh, we saw, for example, very clearly that, that governments uh, postpone or lag behind in terms of key structural reforms uh, under the European semester, despite all the instruments of peer pressure and uh, existing sanctions instruments that that are there in the EU in legislation. The government debt correction and uh, uh, deficit correction paths lagged behind, again, what was agreed. Uh, and uh, finally, maybe, or, I mean, although the, the banks, the banking sector uh, is now in a better, a better shape uh, than in the past, uh, I mean, uh, still they, they do rely on, on the government uh, support. So uh, here we are. We we are uh, um, in front of the uh, of the new crisis. Uh, we have uh, certainly had a lot of achievements, a lot of compressed uh, reforms, integration. Uh, but uh, we see that in each and every of these reforms, we can find deficiencies. And I see I'm already almost uh, almost used up all my time. So I would stop. I will stop here and probably uh, get a little bit deeper in the COVID-related aspects uh, in, the, in my next intervention. Thank you, Carlos, and thanks all to, for your attention. Thank you. Carlos, you're on thank mute. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for your uh, thorough explanation of the uh, institutional developments and and, 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 and and new institutions being emerging uh, because of the because of the crisis in the European Union um, I would like to actually use my opportunity to to ask a follow-up question which is a follow-up a follow-up to a follow-up uh, meaning that uh, Martin Jabolinch in, uh, in, 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 the, in, in also in his chapter for, for, for the book that we wrote, but uh, he was participating in the previous panel on the on the economic development, and he was he was actually mentioning one interesting aspect that uh, there is there is evidence that the European Union uh, comes out of the crisis economic crisis weaker than other countries or regions in the world. 
meaning that the US is always coming out uh, better than the European Union is coming out. So we are kind of celebrating the fact that we have new institutions, our integration is going further, but what about the actual economic competitiveness aspect? Is European Union actually getting better from the point of view of we being strong economy after the crisis? Or there is there is some truth in the, in the element that uh, some other ones are better prepared, prepared for crisis and dealing with them? Yes, thank you, Carlos. That, that's that's a complex question because uh, I think uh, all the all the institutions that are in charge of the economic policy, I mean, the European Commission, the European Central Bank, uh, have been pointing out at at uh, at the recovery that uh, uh, has been taking place after the previous crisis at uh, various paces in 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 various parts of uh, the European Union. Uh, so. Uh, Although all in all, the EU uh, at, at the aggregate level is not doing that bad, uh, we see uh, several pockets, uh, pockets meaning member states or maybe regions, uh, where the recovery for various reasons lag, lags behind. And part of the answer to, to, to this might be really this, uh, this uh, you know, when, when um, the sense of urgency uh, is over, you have uh, uh, you you have put a man to a fire. You kind of relax, yeah. You relax, and you are in a more like uh, 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 normal normal mood. And this this might have led uh, to the fact that still uh, now, uh, more than ten years after uh, the financial crisis, um, we uh, we still see, for example, if you look at uh, uh, at the at the government uh, budget and government debt area very great divergences and in some member states where that should have gone down it actually went up even be before COVID. we see for example in the financial sector uh, that um in some member states uh, the issue of uh, non-performing loans and low profitability uh has not been addressed because again although everybody recognizes, and we have all policy documents and recommendations uh, that are of a peer pressure nature uh, it is it is still the case, and therefore, uh, now entering into into COVID crisis, there is certain uh, divergence uh, among member states, and I would come maybe later uh, uh, to 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 uh, to assessment of whether these divergences uh, can influence the recovery after the crisis in the European Union. To what extent these divergences might play out? So, I think we are not doing that bad. But uh, uh, unfortunately, as uh, you know, always in the EU, uh, we are a little bit uh, relaxing too much, maybe, and not solving the problems that we all know about. I mean, remember, you, you, you yourself remember how many years we have been talking about the need to, of, more, uh, of more investment in, in research and innovation in the European Union. And I still uh, see basically the same number, the same comparisons to the leading nations in this area, uh, South Korea, Japan, US. So we are still there. Something has to be done. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Michael. Uh, Lucia, if I may turn to you, uh, could you please uh, explain a little bit and touch upon the uh, EU's role um, in, the, in, in the rule of law crisis and maybe in a bit general context, the future challenges to the European Union treaties uh, especially taking into account how complex the, the current relationships uh, are and how, how complex also already the Lisbon Treaty adoption process was. Please. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Carlis, for the work and uh, work, and also for uh, the uh, invitation here for, for organizers uh, for uh, setting these uh, nice uh, uh, talks, uh, even in the online uh, world. So it's uh, I know how, how challenging it is. So yeah, uh, rule of law crisis and also the, its impact maybe on the on the treaties and on the overall functioning of the of the European Union. Yeah. So uh, we all know that the uh, European Union is based on common values and uh, together with, uh, with the Treaty on Lisbon, as you mentioned, the rule of law is explicitly stated there in Article 2. And uh, this is something where uh, the, the member states agreed that this is like a fundamental uh, basis for our cooperation to be uh, legal, to be legitimate, to uh, uh, work on some uh, basic a level of, of legal certainty and to uh, generally uh, work uh, on the on the principles uh, we had agreed at the beginning even uh, within the, its predecessor uh, in the European communities before the European Union. But uh, actually uh, this kind of a constitutionalization of the rule of law in the Lisbon Treaty in 2009 just give us or draw our attention to the pictures where we find out that the rule of law is not actually working in some states or the states are not able to fulfill this obligation uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the rule of law mechanism. I can say uh, the examples which are pretty much known uh, for all of us, like the, the Roma crisis in France already in 2010, where the European Commission had to uh, initiate the action uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, initiate the mechanism of a talks with the, with the French government because of the uh, of the problems with the implementation of the directive on free movement of uh, of people in the in the European Union. Then we can continue with the Hungarian uh, uh, crisis that started at the end of 2011 and which had a, a diff even different uh, implications or lines uh, of the rule of law breach, if I can say, connected with the different freedoms uh, as a freedom of speech, uh, freedom of education, uh, freedom of association, freedom of media. Uh, and so on. We can then continue with the Romania a rule of law crisis in uh, 2012, uh, with the Poland uh, uh, rule of law crisis connected with the independency of the of the of the judiciary, uh, and so on and so on. So uh, I would say, like uh, uh, the, this kind of a formal uh, setting of the rule of law in Lisbon Treaty, even uh, help us to understand how much we are uh, on the way to uh, fulfill this uh, obligation correctly. And this is something which uh, uh, cannot be settled like in some uh, very short way. And I would say even that any, uh, any uh, idea about shortcomings there would not be effective. Uh, why? Uh, there should be, uh, you know, like uh, setting uh, general principles, not only the rules, how to tackle uh, the, the, the rule of law crisis. We already have the mechanism. We already had agreed on the regulation. Uh, we already set the legal framework for the for the rule of law enforcement, but uh, again, we can still see that uh, the rule of law is facing uh, many challenges and problems. And I would like to connect it also uh, our attention with the the current COVID uh, COVID crisis. And it's very visible that uh, the governments, uh, many of the governments, use the shortcomings like the justification for the breach of the rule of law. They used uh, the shortened legislative procedure. They uh, substitute the legal power and the legislative competence rather by the executive orders. 
to prevent or just uh, arguing that uh, it's not a breach of rule of law. We, uh, of course, had the, the legislative process, but in these extraordinary circumstances, an extraordinary situation, we have to act even uh, uh, rapidly. And that's why they used uh, rather some kind of a shortcoming of uh, the extraordinary procedure or the decision of the executive bodies instead of the proper legislation. And this uh, uh, really uh, raised the question of, uh, of, the, of the rule of law, how much we care about the rule of law in the implementation practice. So I would uh, uh, make the point of, uh, of the distinction between this uh, formal uh, codification and the actual implementation, because that's the issue where we are uh, facing plenty of, uh, plenty of the problems. And uh, of course, uh, there's no only one and um, uh, let's say effective solution, but rather we can focus what we uh, can do within the European Union uh, for its uh, effective implementation, even if there its uh, uh, implementation is connected with other crises, no matter whether economic, financial, pandemic, health crises, or uh, any, any other crisis. The rule of law as, as the fundamental value had to really uh, be uh, properly exercised and of course uh, not only uh, guaranteed by the EU law but also enforced by the EU law. And here's, here comes the problem uh, from my perspective uh, and that's the capacity or, uh, or competencies uh, the EU institutions have in enforcement of the, of the rule of law. We know that uh, uh, the Commission is uh, in, the, in charge of enforcement of the rule of law but actually, uh, we have to be aware whether the Commission has the capacities. I mean, like uh, how many uh, concrete uh, people, departments, and uh, and professionals are able to deal with uh, with the rule of law enforcement. Uh, the mechanism set in the Article Seven requires uh, the the notifications, warnings, negotiations at the time for the response from the national governments, and then uh, it requires the approval from the Parliament to get to the court of justice, to the enforcement mechanism. And we are quite aware that uh, there, this, this is the problem. This was the problem with the, with the Polish uh, 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 SEW or the SEW from the commission to the Poland. This was also the big uh, discussion in relation to Hungary. So uh, what we should uh, in, uh, in a way of uh, tackling uh, the rule of law crisis focus is the commission's action on the rule of law and the capacity to deal with this crisis and its proper uh, enforcement. So uh, that's one of the point of view. And another one is, and uh, I would like to then somehow connect it with the second question of uh, what we can do later on is the equality of the member uh, of the member states. Yeah, uh, the rule of law crisis, as I already mentioned, mainly focus uh, uh, the, the situation in let's say still newcomers yeah i mentioned hungary poland romania a little bit less like a Fr french crisis and so on so the member states for the proper implementation have to really focus on the equality of the member states and these member states are those which are setting the rules and which have the competence even to set the rules in uh, in the new revisions of the treaties which uh, will be probably the issue of the incoming years because of the enlargement process because of the uh, other crisis connected with the development in the European Union. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lucia, very much. Uh, a follow-up question immediately, um, if, I, if, if I may. Uh, a quick one. Is it over? 
basically uh what i mean is that uh we have we have seen first of all and what you were already explaining and we have seen the reactions from the hungarian governments we have seen reactions from the polish governments and they're always uh arguing that this is interpretation and what they're doing is actually not going against the principles of democracy and then we have of course uh, different international organizations stating that they are already uh are already consolidating their authoritarian regimes and whatnot again uh, dramatizing the situation maybe um, the question is that we also saw uh, in December last year uh, the multi-annual financial framework adopted with 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 this uh, principle in it. Although, again, as you correctly explained, it's in a very vague and a very complex manner uh, how how it can be implemented. So my question is uh, rather well, it's it's a short one, but it's not a simple one, I guess. Is it over? Or can we expect that there are going to be some new uh, rule of law type of crisis uh, in those two countries or maybe in any other countries which are in the European Union? I would say it's uh, not uh, like a short crisis, so it's, uh, it's lasting. And with this pandemic, it even prolonged its existence. So, I mean, like uh, we uh, very uh, or harder can focus on the value oriented policies, which is uh, which are based on the rule of law, democracy and human rights when we are facing the economic uh, impacts of the pandemic crisis, of the, of the cooperation uh, of the member states. So even if uh, the commission had the ambition in this term to deal with the rule of law uh, properly, I mean, like really focus, monitor and enforce it against the member states, uh, their capacities are limited because of the exercising of the other competencies. So it's not definitely over. And I would say that it will last longer than we had expected and even the Commission had expected in monitoring uh, uh, of, uh, of the situation in Member States. Thank you. Thank you, Lucia, very much. Uh, Antoinette, if I may turn to you now. Um, about the aspect of joining, leaving the EU integration, um, how complex has it become uh, to be at, in, in the true core of the uh, European Union institutionally, politically, and also economically? Right uh, versus against uh, uh, against a country who has been uh, who has been uh, deciding to leave uh, the European Union, who has decided to stop integrating and then leave the project altogether because it uh, feels like the European Union is is dragging it back. So could you please uh, address these, uh, these 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 nuances? Uh. We are now almost uh, heading towards five years since uh, the referendum in the United Kingdom decided that uh, the United Kingdom should leave. And uh, Brexit was uh, at the time perceived as the biggest crisis ever. Although uh, we have to remember that every time a crisis, maybe not the rule of law, but uh, for example, 2005, the referendum in France and the Netherlands were easily described as the biggest crisis ever. Uh, so, uh, of course, it was uh, a very uh, different crisis than the other ones, but I think it was essential and it relates to the question you are uh, posing. Uh, Brexit was uh, important because uh, it did show that uh, uh, the uh, European Union is not so much uh, a construction, uh, this metaphor of building a house and putting the last corner store or the roof, but that it's really a modus operandi. And what the uh, Brexit did show was that uh, the house did not collapse. Uh, the metaphor of uh, construction site, uh, which uh, 
heading for the roof uh, doesn't work, but, and it continued to work uh, quite well as a modus operandi. Uh, but not in the way uh, many uh, expected. Uh, I, I think it's very interesting to see that uh, uh, some months after the referendum in the United Kingdom, uh, the commission came out with its white book, which is now almost forgotten, with all the scenarios. Uh, and then later on, uh, <clears throat> uh, Jean-Claude Juncker coming up with his sixth scenario. And now we are heading towards uh, the uh, conference on the future of Europe, which was uh, called uh, Conference 2020, but we are now in in 2021. And uh, I think it's very much uh, deja vu. It's a feeling for me like experiences, all the enthusiasm of uh, going into deeper uh, integration back in 2000. Uh, with uh, the convention and then the treaty and the referendum. And it's as if this is forgotten, uh, the scenarios of Juncker uh, are forgotten and of the commission. And now we are heading for um, maybe trying to put uh, more and more uh, changes to the treaties, which I think would be disastrous because I think if we try to change the treaties that now we would uh, immediately uh, act actually uh, end up uh, with the disaster of 2005. And I think this is the big problem with the uh, European uh, Union that uh, we are separating the question of the European Union from member states. We are always asking the question, is the European Union doing better? Does it deliver or uh, does it not? But we are not always, of course, it was mentioned uh, with regard both to the banking union and to the rule of law that what matters is what happens in member states and uh, in uh, we see that uh, we have a lot of deficiencies in member states but member states of course are inclined to blame the european commission and the european union and to take them as the scapegoat so uh, i think that after brexit for example one of the consequences is that uh, one of the issues which was considered the core of the european union schengen uh, did collapse uh, at the moment, but for obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, uh, during the pandemic crisis, when countries introduce restrictions to the free movement within the country, sometimes within the provinces, within the cities, we can't expect Schengen to function uh, as it was. So in this respect, of course, it's uh, very difficult to uh, talk about um, making uh, Schengen functional again, or for example, for a country like Bulgaria, which uh, actually is still not part of uh, Schengen, it's um, uh, the moment is not the right one to uh, pursue this uh, goal. On the other hand, uh, just the challenges of the different crises have uh, inspired some countries to come closer to the uh, core. And here again, I can give the example of Bulgaria with regard to the banking union. Uh, Bulgaria is so eager to be in the mainstream of the European Union and uh, to join uh, the Eurozone uh, uh, once it is uh, possible. So that Bulgaria agreed to, uh, in order to get uh, admitted to the uh, ERM2, 
uh, it joined the banking union, which is uh, and Croatia uh, as well, which is unique. So uh, actually, the uh, mood of crises has uh, sometimes made certain moves in member states easier to move closer to the core. So there is no general answer to say: Is it now? Uh, what does it require to become? Uh, a core uh, country of European integration. It's very much uh, up to the countries themselves. Uh, but I think in general, Brexit uh, made the mood for integration stronger uh, all over Europe now. Uh, of course, there are always speculations about which country might be the next uh, to leave the European Union, but uh, I don't think that the mood for leaving the European Union is uh, strong just now. And uh, I want to uh, end up with this just few introductory remarks, uh, which are reminding an aphorism by Voltaire that uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Uh, and I think that this is the problem with the European Union. We uh, all the time uh, are arguing that uh, the European Union is not delivering. What could it do? But uh, actually, uh, I think it's delivering quite well in all these crises. But of course, it's not perfect. Of course, it could be always better. But what I miss in our debates is uh, not uh, that we don't ask uh, simultaneously with the, the question, could the EU do better? We do not ask the question, would a certain member state, my member state, or member states in general, do better without the European Union? And that we do not ask the question, could my member states do better? And if we don't ask these three questions simultaneously, uh, could the EU do better? Could my member state, uh, my country do better? Uh, could uh, uh, every member state do better without the European Union? Uh, then uh, we have uh, a debate which is not well balanced and we ask the wrong question. So because the general question in uh, the panel and in your debates was, uh, is the European Union getting better? I think in a way it's the wrong question. It's quite good, it will be not perfect. And uh, you asked us a question, uh, whether there is a crisis which could uh, put an end to the crisis in, in the European Union. I think, of course, not. Uh, we will always have uh, challenges uh, and they are not, uh, I mean, there will be always challenges that are not predictable. There are some which are man-made, but there are many which are not predictable. And that's why I would insist on considering the European Union as a modus operandi and not as a construction site and asking all the time when I'm going to put the roof to the house. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Antoinette, very much. Uh, I, I think we're going to go still back to the uh, uh, question at some point, uh, if, if there could be the dramatic point when uh, we, we, we reach the moment when the crisis is too big uh, for the European Union to handle. But that's, um, that's not what I wanted to ask immediately. I immediately, I wanted to, um, to, to follow up on what you said, that the mood currently uh, for leaving the European Union is not, uh, is not strong. But uh, from the other point of view, and, uh, and this is going to be a very provocative question, but it's kind of a question which has been lingering in the air for, uh, for very many uh, years, if not even decades sometimes. Um, will it be easier to now to integrate for the other European Union member states? Will it be easier now for the uh, European integration project now when, when, when the United Kingdom has left? 
I think it's the wrong question. <laughs> uh, and uh, we see that the, uh, uh, many have taken the United Kingdom as the scapegoat. There were, uh, in some countries, uh, okay, on the one hand, people were talking it might be the end of the European Union or, uh, as such. But uh, on the other hand, there were some which were hoping that now finally we can go for a deeper integration. And if we look now, it's five years uh, since the referendum. And of course, they really left just few months ago, uh, except for defense, I would not say that they have been big leaps towards deeper integration. And I think the whole debate about deeper integration is too much uh, actually linked to the idea that the European Union has as a final destination to become a federal state. And personally, I think this is wrong. And that's why uh, I think that we will get more uh, cooperation with the European Union, but not necessarily in uh, the framework uh, of a federal state with an ever stronger European Parliament uh, and uh, European Commission. I think that just this opposing uh, member states to the uh, European Union and saying that the solution is uh, a deeper integration uh, somehow at the expense of uh, uh, a weaker role for member states, I think is the wrong way to consider the future. I think really we have to ask much more the questions about what member states are delivering and how they are delivering. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Rem, finally, uh, you, we, we, we have now, uh, the three previous panelists discussed a uh, multiplicity of crises uh, that, that have been there. Um, how they have affected the global role of the European Union? There has been damage done by the migration crisis, by Brexit, by the economic and financial uh, crisis, the rule of law crisis, and internal uh, problems in the European Union itself. What is what is what is the current state of the uh, image of the European Union in in the world affairs? Uh, th thank you very much, uh, Carlos, and and it's great to join this conversation and to be in Riga, albeit virtually. Um, I want to answer your question by taking a look at how the crises, to what degree Europe has actually been able to manage its crises. Because I think that's really informative and in also how Europe is being viewed from the outside. And so when I look at Europe's response to the multiple crises that we've already been talking about just now, you can categorize them as the good, the bad, and the uncertain. And just to look at them very briefly, we have seen European crises where the end result was actually a show of European unity. And that, of course, expresses itself also internationally as, um, as a net positive, as a way in which the EU is able to resolve its crises. I think a very clear example of that, and Antoinette mentioned uh, it just now is Brexit and particularly the Brexit negotiations. I think looking back at the Brexit negotiations, a lot of people were worried that it would be difficult for the 27 to maintain a common united front, that they would be unpicked by the United Kingdom, or that they would fall head over heels in terms of trying to negotiate side deals with the UK to get uh, extra preferential market access or to soften uh, the European negotiating mandate. And in fact, what we saw is that Brexit, although it was a crisis for the EU, actually became a, um, a symbol of European unity. 
and I, I will get back to that later and actually say that to some degree, this is, this is a template uh, for how Brussels is, is, is also potentially thinking about um, its crisis management moving forward. Another area where I think we saw stronger cohesion inside the European Union in a time of crisis, rather than, than perhaps what people expected, has to do with Russia's sanctions policy. I think Russia's sanctions policy is an, is an, uh, is an incidence where people were suggesting that it would be much more difficult for the European Union to maintain a common agenda, to maintain a common front. Um, and that hasn't materialized. Now, there are deep problems with Europe's response to Russian challenges, and I'll get to that. But the fact that Russian sanctions policy has simply been rolled over, and it's been being rolled over quite inconsequentially, there's not huge debate about this, I think shows that there is definitely some resolve inside the EU to keep that going along. I, I think a third area, which you could call the good, is um, the decision on the next generation EU fund. I, I slightly disagree with Antoinette that um, uh, I think that if the UK was still inside the European Union, that next generation EU would not have happened, or at least not in the way in which it's now taken shape. I think that next generation EU is to a certain degree a real um, strong step in economic integration, possibly the greatest step in economic integration since the introduction of the Euro, um, but the jury is still out on how it's actually going to be implemented. But the fact that we had 27 countries, including very critical countries like my own, the Netherlands, signing up to this, I think um, is a, a, a result that we should, that we should embrace. Um, also, I mean, Valdis Dombrovskis spoke this morning about EU trade policy. I think uh, the global trade system is definitely in a state of crisis, but Europe has presented itself as one of the solutions to this. And of course, this is because trade policy is an EU competence. It's been, able, it's been able to act quite coherently and quite assertively, but it is showing its trade muscle. It's tr showing leadership at the global stage in terms of moving trade policy forward. It's introducing uh, trade enforcement instruments. So it's also kind of beefing up its, its, its role. I think that also shows that Europe is definitely taking serious uh, from the outside uh, on this. But now turning to what you could call the bad or areas where crises actually show European disunity and which harms our image abroad. And I think the Euro crisis in, uh, sort of 10 years ago is, is a very clear example of that. And, and we've already talked about that a little bit. I won't dwell on it. I think the migration crisis really showed that there are big cleavages inside the European Union and that, that there, there's still real room for, for, for tension. Also, the current vaccine procurement mess um, doesn't show the European Union in its strongest light. And I think that this is really something that we need to learn lessons uh, from moving, moving forward. The biggest category of crisis, I think, is uncertain, where it's still the jury is still out in whether it's going to show European strength or European weakness. We've already talked about the rule of law crisis. In my mind, that hasn't been resolved yet. It's taken serious in some quarters, but it's definitely something that's still festering underneath the surface and could potentially really drive a wedge through the European Union if not resolved. And Lucia has already been talking very eloquently about this. 
I think next-gen EU, how it's going to be implemented. Look at the problems we currently see in Italy. Is, is still a deeply controversial uh, tool, particularly because of the oversight that's given to not just the European Commission, but to other member states on each other's public finances. I think really the jury is still out and this is going to influence the way in which the EU is perceived. Um, migration, same story. Are we out of the woods? I'm not sure. Euro crisis still going on. And so, the, for me, the bottom line of this, looking at these crises, is that what they all have in common is that they force the EU to look inward more, to be focused inward, rather than engaging with the outside world. And this is the long run-up to answer your question. At the international level, in terms of foreign policy, we also have tremendous challenges. And we have challenges uh, when it comes to our China policy on developing a coherent approach to Russia. We've just seen a dramatic um, uh, 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 press moment between Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov and HRVP Borrell. We have huge uh, challenges when it comes to formulating a coherent response to, uh, to many of our neighbors, not just Russia. What do we do with Belarus, Turkey, the United Kingdom? It's, it really requires coherent European action and in fact, we don't have that. Um, what makes things, I think, even particularly challenging is that in times of crisis, crises require um, political leaders to act. Things are bumped up to the level of uh, heads of government. They become chefsache. But our political leaders, they also play to national constituencies. So institutionally, this is a huge challenge for the European Union. If every crisis requires actions by uh, prime ministers or presidents, then um, it, you will see a, a certain amount of rigidity in our ability to respond. And if we know anything from previous crises is that rigidity is the enemy of an accurate crisis response. So drawing from these lessons, I think the main question for the EU is, whether it will require the EU to move together as one, or whether we're going to build in more degrees of flexibility in how member states and how European institutions respond to different crises. In the area of foreign policy, we're already slowly moving in that direction. There is a debate that we shouldn't have unanimity in all areas of foreign policy making, particularly when it comes to sanctions. Um, we are introducing QMV. We are seeing HRVP Borrell being much more assertive rather than waiting for the 27 member states to sign off on a statement. And so we're the EU as such is trying to be more flexible. Um, but I don't think I don't think we're there where we need to be. I would I would finish off with one um, final comment, and that is, uh, the EPC, a think tank in Brussels, came out with a very interesting paper uh, yesterday or the day before, where they talk about how the European Union should respond to this period of what they call permacrisis. And they also uh, raise this example of what they call the Barnier method. So Brexit, of course, is unique, but the way in which Michel Barnier and his task force kind of dealt with this, and also how a semi-political leader was given a very robust mandate with the necessary flexibility by the member states to negotiate, to uh, work on this particular topic, and very importantly, also reach back and keep national governments and national 
parliaments involved with what he was doing proved a recipe for success in terms of Brexit. Now, that might be a model to follow when it comes to other external crises. Should we have a task force on Russia? Should we have a task force on Belarus or on Libya or on, uh, or on trade in issues in, 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 in general? Um, it becomes problematic and this model cannot be followed for domestic or internal crises. For instance, rule of law. You can't imagine a Barnier-like figure dealing with, uh, with rule of law in, internally. But on the external front, I think we're learning the lesson. Internally, we still have major, major challenges to, uh, to work through. And uh, this period of crisis won't go away anytime soon. So I'm slightly pessimistic about this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much about uh, this, uh, this, this, this. This is truly wonderful insight. Uh, while people are um, writing their questions or raising their hands or those, or those who are uh, participating as attendees, um, a follow-up question, uh, literally a follow-up question on what you said the last point, uh, is that uh, we, are, we are dealing with uh, domestic crisis and, 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 and so outside we are doing rather okay. My, my question is, um, everyone still sees the European Union, meaning the, the third country, see the European Union as a, as a nice place, right? We still have, I'm sorry for the cynicism in this case, but uh, the migration crisis is still unresolved, but it is largely because people are willing to come to the European Union. Uh, we, have, we have seen a lot of people who are coming and studying in the European Union. We have seen uh, the uh, European Union used as an example. We still have multiple countries who are willing to join the European Union. So basically we domestically, when we are looking at our own world we are actually looking not at the whole world we're just looking from our perspective so to speak that we have a problem here and a problem there but uh, would you agree with this um no, I, I think i think that's i think that's true and i think what i've tried to articulate also is that what the crises do is that they they focus europe inward we 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 are very good at talking about ourselves. I mean, we're doing it today as well. It's, 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 uh, it's almost the European uh, ailment, that our tragedy, that we, we tend to, uh, and I'm, I'll immediately say that I'm also debit to this, but we focus on our, on our failings rather than on our strengths. Um, we focus on what the things, the, the, thing, the things that divide us, the issues that divide member states, rather than on what actually makes us very attractive and still, to your point, very much a beacon or an example for other parts of the world. I think how it resonates in terms of our foreign policy is that um, we need to uh, realize that while we're talking about rule of law inside the European Union, while we're discussing about relocation and resettlement of irregular migrants and asylum seekers inside the European Union, while we're dealing with this issue of, of Brexit on our doorstep, there is something major happening in, uh, on the international level, which is the most the dominant uh, geopolitical trend, which is also going to shape Europe's future, is how the United States and China are going to or are not going to um, uh, settle their differences. And this rise of China and sort of the emergence of a Chinese century, if you will, has huge implications, 
not just for Europe's policy, it has uh, huge implications for what we call the West. Is that still a transatlantic construct or are there different Wests? It has consequences for our value agenda. And we're hardly talking about this because we're very absorbed about the crisis in terms of our, our, our checkbook, the Euro crisis, in terms of what my community looks like, the migration crisis. And um, that, that I think is a, is a challenge for Europe to be able to uh, be coherent uh, when it comes to its uh, its foreign policy and to promote its interests in in that new geopolitical surroundings. Okay, thank you, thank you, Ram, very much. Uh, we have uh, questions coming in uh, from the from the from the audience. Um, in this case, I will I will start with the first one that we have, and uh, let's go back to Michal as the, as the first one to 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 answer. Um, what do you think has been the most stimulating crisis of the last decade? So I guess the question is, which crisis has stimulated the most of the uh, in, in the European integration? Thank you, uh, thank you, Carlos. Well, uh, I, I've been uh, I've been working, you know, since the inception of of my career in the field of uh, financial and economic governance. I think uh, we probably still don't know. Uh, what uh, uh, what was or what is or what will be uh, the uh, uh, the largest crisis, uh, because I think uh, uh, what uh, we are entering into now is something really really unknown. If uh, uh, the previous crises were in a way um, uh, could have been predicted, and there were uh, signals of, you know coming from. Uh, the European Commission, the, the International Monetary Fund, for example, on uh, the building up of imbalances before uh, the major financial crisis uh, of the past. Um, simply, uh, simply, there was a bit of complacency before that. I remember myself, uh, really, uh, the Commission uh, uh, really putting a lot of pressure in 2006 and 2007 to member states, and still, still uh, the reforms that were needed were not, were not, uh, were not conducted. So I, I think the... Uh, major test in the coming years uh, would be uh, the moment when we would need to withdraw uh, the support packages. Basically, coming back to normal after COVID in the field of uh, uh, economic and financial policy, maybe not so much in other policy areas, uh, will be a, a major test because this would expose a, a, a lot of issues that I mentioned in my first intervention. So I think this we have to think about it we have to we have to prepare for that because it would come and when it comes we have to be ready okay thank you thank you Michael. uh colleagues do you have uh, thoughts on which one has been the most uh, uh, european integration accelerating crisis lucia yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, about the one which uh, joined us uh, mostly, and, and that would be probably the, the financial crisis, where we definitely uh, received the proof that uh, the economic cooperation helped uh, also the smaller states and, and also the, the, I would say, like uh, rather fragile economies uh, to, to survive without uh, some, some higher economic damages. Because the other crisis rather uh, somehow uh, make the distinction between the states. As I mentioned, the rule of law make the feeling that the, uh, that the, the newcomers or the, the, the new uh, members of the European Union 
uh, are somehow under more as a monitoring or supervision than the than the older states. Uh, when we look on the migration crisis, we are back uh, to the issue that uh, it makes the distinction between the between the countries. So I would say, like uh, probably the economic crisis was the one where we had been able to cooperate because it was the common interest, and maybe it was connected with the the basic character why we actually started the project of the European integration, the economic benefits. And those political uh, advantages and political cooperation is coming uh, with, with, a, with a harder uh, way uh, because it's based on a different uh, political cultures. While when we come to economy, we have these uh, benchmarks, indicators, which are common for all the member states. But when we are talking about the, the migrants, we have a different experience, different perception with incoming, outgoing, when we look on the rule of law, uh, it's very similar, uh, as you mentioned, the, the Polish uh, representatives or Hungarians uh, said it's, it's totally okay, but uh, the other country said it's against the rule of law if you uh, somehow um, arbitrary adopt the decisions and change legislation. So I would say uh, in this manner, the economic was the one which connect us mainly. Mm. Antoinette? The best crisis. <laughs> European integration perspective. Yes, I uh, agree with uh, Lucia's assessment about the uh, financial uh, crisis, but I would say also that uh, the, we have uh, the crisis where the jury is still out, as uh, Rem mentioned, uh, the new uh, EU generation uh, program for recovery and reconciliation. But uh, here again, uh, for me, the main issue will be how member states will function. Rem mentioned Italy, my country is also an example where actually everybody agrees that uh, the EU uh, is very generous with its support, but there are very strong doubts what will Bulgaria be able to do with it. So uh, it's considered a big chance. And we are heading for elections. It's quite natural that, uh, of course, the oppositional parties claim that the government will be not able to make the best out of it or nothing out of it. So. Uh, if it ends up like the cohesion policy, which was meant to be a big leap towards deep integration, then it will be bad news. So here the jury is still, uh, still out. It might become the big issue for uh, deeper European integration, but we don't know yet. Thank you. Yeah, I want to go back a little bit further in history and to remind sort of listeners that there was a major, major horrific geopolitical crisis, which of course jump-started European integration. I mean, the European coal and steel community came, was emerged out of a huge European crisis. Um, and if I'm sort of staying on that geopolitical track, I actually think that um, one of the developments which we haven't really digested yet, but which I think is, is, is changing the attitude of many European political leaders is what, um, uh, what four years of Donald Trump have done to our interpretation of what I mentioned last, sort of what, what the West is. I think there was this tendency, even though everyone kind of look at, looked at transatlantic policy and sort of knew that the United States asked more and increasingly more of Europe to, for instance, pay for its own defense and that uh, Americans always um, were, were, were there to point out that we had to move faster or to, to, to be more coherent. There was always this assumption 
that in the end, the Americans would have our back. This concept, I think, is, was challenged significantly by Donald Trump. And four years of Donald Trump, you could make the argument, well, you know, he's gone now and we have uh, Joe Biden. But if I even listen to US foreign policymakers today, they will tell you, okay, there's no time to waste because our moment for rebuilding transatlantic relations or doing things together might actually be a quite fleeting window of opportunity. It might just be four years. And if we're unlucky, only two years, who knows what, what comes after that? In other words, the United States is no longer a certainty in terms of Europe's anchor in the world. And I think this is going to drive a different philosophy, a different mindset of European leaders to look more towards each other. Um, and, and so I, I think that this is, you know, I, I think Michaels and, and Antoinette and, and Lucia are all right. I mean, they're very important crises in terms of actual driving pragmatic integration. But at the philosophical level, I think there is this growing assumption that amidst a world where you have a rising China, which thinks very differently about global affairs than Europe does, and uncertainty about the United States, that Europe, as a, 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 a unit of itself, needs to um, uh, come together more. Now, how we do that, of course, is the, is the challenge. Are we on this one-way road towards Euro-federalism? Probably not. But the assumption that we need to think of ourselves first and then look abroad, I think, is, is, is growing. Thank you. Thank you, Rem. We have a few questions still and uh, 10 minutes left. Uh, so uh, I would prefer to have one more round of, 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 of questions and, and answers. Um, in this case, uh, there are, as, as there are three questions, I would like to state all three questions and then uh, e give floor to each of you and you just decide whichever question you prefer to answer. Uh, I will start with uh, Agnes Salatze, uh, one of the co-authors of the book. Uh, she wrote in the chat uh, that my question is, and that goes to Rem directly, um, so I guess you don't have much of the choice. Uh, what I mean uh, is, uh, my question is about crisis labeling. And um, what I mean uh, with crisis labeling is calling some processes as crisis to promote a quicker decision-making process with a seemingly more legitimacy but then offering short-term instead of long-term solutions. Especially this would be seen in the context of uh, the migration crisis, uh, crisis in parenthesis. How has this crisis uh, discourse contributed to the role and image of the EU, EU in the world? Has it rather strengthened the image of the EU as a crisis manager or has uh, exposed the weakness and fragmentation of the organization that can be invoked uh, for political gain from the outside? Okay, so that is that is the question. Uh, then there is another question. We're talking about the crisis uh, and uh, our united actions on how to coordinate and move forward, integrate closer, adjust to changes. But what at the same time, uh, after the largest uh, enlargement, there is still issue with uh, which which remains two speed or multi speed Europe. Uh, how in the end we are united if the countries are are still uh, treated differently? And the third question from my side is going to be very short. Why cannot we integrate without a drama? Uh, please, who wants to go first? Uh, Michals, I would actually prefer you starting. You have about one minute if you could pick the question and answer. 
Yes, yes, thank you, Carlos. Uh, well, yeah, probably the last question is, uh, uh, I wouldn't say the easiest one, but uh, but uh, probably the one that one could answer in, in, in a short, uh, you know, by a short answer. Uh, could we go on without without a drama? I think it comes, uh, uh, I would like to use a couple of arguments made by my fellow panelists uh, who said that uh, in terms of in times in times of crisis we look uh, quite a lot you know inwards um and i think we forget uh and we you know push forward quite a lot uh, uh, of our national uh, interests um some of them might not be even uh, uh you know considered um not legitimate but but uh, you know commensurate with the size of the problem we want to address so uh i think if we look a little bit outside and see that a lot has changed in the world during the last uh, 10 uh, 15 20 years uh and some some of the panelists mentioned uh, the rising role of uh, of china for example uh, uh also more assertive russia uh, changing the united states uh no member state uh, we have to come to an understanding that no member state can do it alone in any area even uh, such uh, uh, developed uh, 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 and experienced uh, uh, member states as I don't know Germany, maybe France, you know, well-established democracies, but even even they need a uh, common area. They need a market. If we, we speak common, we need a scale. So when and, and I think we should uh, we should as as you know people involved in the European affairs should push for this idea. It's not federalism because federalism, I agree, might not might not fly, especially currently. But uh, to to push this idea, that we need scale because this is the only way for us to survive. First of all, I think, and to uh, to thrive uh, in uh, in the future in in the in the kind of globalized but still quite quite polarized world. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Michael Stoswals. Um, Lucia Mokra, please. Yeah, uh, as we have quite a limited time, just. Let me shortly uh, try to uh, respond why integrate uh, without the drama. I would say it's about the articulation and um, this kind of, uh, let's say, uh, way how we are able to manage to communicate. I mean, like uh, politically, so it's the issue of political culture. It's uh, the issue of the, of the political communication and still some kind of, uh, uh, let's say even fight of uh, of political representatives rather than the interest of the states, because when you look on the on the interests of the people, when you look on different uh, public uh, opinion surveys and so on, they are supporting the idea of the European integration. They are looking for the benefits uh, that the EU is providing to them. But when they uh, should be he heard uh, based on their political representatives, they rather focus on this kind of. Uh, leadership uh even fight the way of presentation uh of of their interest not in a smoothly uh, if i can say way but rather uh, on this uh, even fighting character of the conversation so we somehow left uh, the diplomatic language behind as we know uh, which is something uh, sensitive and common in international relations and rather use the the terminology which is uh, sometimes even passive aggressive so uh, and it caused the problems at the end uh, how we are on the same way on the integration there. Thank you. Thank you, Lucia, very much. Antoinette, which one you pick? 
one of the questions related to two-speed Europe, and uh, of course in new member states uh, this is an issue for, for countries which are not in Schengen, not in the Eurozone yet. Uh, of course this is an issue, and then the question arises that uh, uh, for example, not that much for Schengen, but uh, for example, the Eurozone, that uh, integration might mean integration only for Eurozone countries. This was part of concern in Bulgaria uh, at the start of the discussion on the next budget and the uh, recovery plan. And uh, now it is uh, gone, but of course the, the concern still remains. And that's why I think that, uh, at least in our case, uh, two-speed Europe is considered as uh, not good for the country. So uh, in a way, uh, there is a desire to be part of the mainstream. And uh, But then the problem is uh, in how far this is facilitated by the European Union, by other member states, etc. So you. I don't think that two-speed Europe is the way ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Antoinette. And uh, Rem, please, your, I guess, yeah. Thank you, and, and thank you for Agnes's question. The, um, the question of crisis labeling is an interesting one. Uh, and I think, I, think she, I think she's right. I think um, almost, I mean, it's a very eloquent question, and she's almost answering the question by posing it. The, the fact that developments automatically get this label of being a crisis, an existential threat to the European Union, means that, yes, immediately they do attract the attention of political leaders and that things become chefsache, they're bumped up to the European Council, um, and that measures are taken principally to also avoid them from dominating the headlines. And that, I think, is very clearly the case in the context of the migration crisis. Um, I think that it, it, it does deserve the label of being a crisis simply because how the issue resonates in so many um, capitals and uh, individual member states. This really became a domestic political challenge for the um, for for political leaderships, and um, because of that, and the, the the solution that was found to deal with the migration crisis, i.e., to push it off of the front pages, was to outsource it. It was a very short-term strategy. The strategy initially was, okay, we need to find a way, we need to up update Dublin 3, we need to uh, develop a, a sensible system of resettlement and relocation. And both those things ran into problems very quickly. Dublin 3, we're still talking about updating Dublin 3. Uh, relocation and resettlement, that's still an issue. But it's now no longer a pure full-blown crisis because it doesn't dominate our front pages. Why? Because we have a fairly functional migration pact with Turkey. So we've outsourced the solution and, and that creates a vulnerability. It's hugely full. I mean, we see this. Turkey um, uses uh, the migration pact uh, as a whip to challenge anything coming from the EU. It wants visa-free access, which the Europeans promised. It wants its 6 billion euros, which it says it never received. Whether this is all true or not is beside the question. It creates leverage for a third country with which we have a very difficult relationship. And so the outsourcing the crisis in the context of migration to Turkey actually sets us up 
for another very tensious relationship with one of our neighboring countries. And so I think you're I think you're right. That's the short that's the short answer. I think you're right. I think this does lead to short termism. Um, but the rate in which crises manifest themselves is also increasing. Again, this EPC paper I mentioned talks about perma crisis. I'm sure that your book also talks about sort of the variety of crises that the European Union confronts. Um, and so it's also, I think, uh, I, I don't know how we how we get out of this, how we get out of crisis mode. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Rem Kortovec. And um, just to wrap it all up uh, in, in, in uh, one, one minute or less, um, I, I, I think I want to uh, again follow up. This is what I have been doing the whole, uh, the whole show, uh, following up uh, on uh, what Antoinette uh, mentioned. Uh, I guess a bit of a rephrasing of, of the old um, JFK, uh, uh, well, the Kennedy saying uh, that what don't ask what you can do for your uh, what the country can do for yourself for you but ask what you can do for the for the for the country so in this case the people should be asking what they what their governments are doing and could be doing uh, for the sake of the European Union and that actually again wrapping it up and and thinking about the book uh, one of the one of the conclusions which uh, somewhat came out uh, was that it's somewhat double standards. Whenever we're discussing the European Union's double standards, the uh, sustainability of the European Union is always tested with every crisis. Unlike the nation states, when they face crisis, nobody is asking, well, should we get rid of the nation state or should we get rid of our state? Then in case of the European Union, very often the question is existential. Do we even need the European Union? And in this case, Honestly, and, and from a humane perspective, I, I don't think it's just fair. It's a, it's a blonde double standard. Anyways, uh, thank you very much. Thank you all the panelists for excellent conversation, excellent discussion. Uh, we are continuing the, uh, the, the conference at uh, three o'clock uh, with, with a closing keynote conversation on the EU's future and place in the world with uh, Jose Manuel Duraboroso, uh, chair of Gavi and the uh, uh, former former president of the European Commission and former prime minister of Portugal, and it's going to be moderated by Edis Bosch from the Regestradinch University. Uh, thank you very much, and see you. Thank you. Bye.